not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you were still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace again because we need it. Lord, I in particular need it to make your word clear and understandable, and I pray that you would assist me in that endeavor. Lord, that it would be both a a charge, a challenge to those who need it, but also a balm and a comfort to others who need it. I'm I'm reminded that you, O Lord, did not, uh, you would not hurt a broken reed, a bruised reed, and a smoking flash, you flask, flacks you would not extinguish. You were gentle, and yet you were also sharp. And I pray that you would be both according to all of our needs. Lord, you know us. You know our lives. You know how long we've been saved. You know our trials. You know our resources. You know our benefits and blessings. And you know what you've designed us for. And I pray that the result of this message, of a clear understanding of your word in these four verses, really would catapult us to greater spiritual maturity. And if there's any amongst us who are stunted in their growth spiritually, that you would free them so they might fully enjoy all that you have designed and prepared for them. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. There are a handful of movies that I remember uh, when I was, from when I was a child. Um, A few that that come to mind. um, Most of the, the scenes that I remember tended to be very dramatic scenes, and so that's probably why they're embedded in my mind. I remember seeing Bambi when his mother was shot. I remember a scene from the Clint Eastwood movie Firefox when a Russian spy gives up his life for Clint Eastwood to save him while he was trying to steal a plane. Uh, A scene from the Twilight Zone when this guy who was a racist somehow, it's Twilight Zone, gets transferred into Nazi Germany and he's getting chased by the Nazis. Dragon Slayer, a scene when the princess is uh, eaten by a bunch of baby dragons. It's a bloody affair and that stood out in my mind. But I think that the, the one scene I think that probably had the greatest impact, most that I still vividly remember when I watched it as a four-year-old, was from Superman 2. And I love Superman, uh, not just because he's a great superhero um, and has a great theme song to go along with it, Um, but the scene that stuck out in my mind from that movie 
was when Superman chose to give up his superpowers in order to become merely human, in order to, I believe it was to marry Lois Lane. And the scene that really stood out from that was when he ended up getting severely beat up by this guy in a diner um, and then was really completely humiliated and, and, and bloodied. And it was, it was horrific to see my superhero get treated so horribly when I knew, as all the readers or viewers knew, this was Superman. This shouldn't be happening. But it did happen because he chose to set aside his supernatural powers in order to become merely human. And I believe that the grief that I really felt and the shock that I experienced in seeing that scene is somewhat, it's probably somewhat um, similar to what, the, what Paul felt as he considered the Corinthian situation. Because like Superman, they too had set aside their immense supernatural benefits, their resources, in order to chase the glories of this life. And in fact, as he says here, they were acting like mere humans, experiencing, therefore, the painful consequences of their choice. And so before the Corinthians can get themselves back on track to where they should be spiritually, they need to be convinced that this is, in fact, what had taken place. That they had ignored, neglected the Holy Spirit and his resources in order to chase other things. That they needed to wake up to the reality that their spiritual growth had been completely stunted. And so chapter 3 begins with the reality of their stunted growth. Uh, It draws on what Paul had said earlier in the letter. If you look up at chapter 2, verse 2, he writes, And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what he explained then is that he kept his message very simple and unimpressive. At least that is by their standards of what would be unimpressive. And the reason he did that is because he wanted them to clearly understand the truth. Any impressive oratory or profound wisdom that they might have been looking for, he realized would only actually just serve to distract them from hearing what they need to hear. And so he says, I wanted to address you as spiritual people, but I couldn't. If you look at verse 3, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. So this phrase, spiritual people, he uses is the same word that he used earlier in chapter 2. If you look at chapter 2, verse 15, and it's that word, it simply refers to people who are in possession of the Holy Spirit. And so, that is opposed to natural people, people without the Holy Spirit, unbelievers. So he had to speak to them as if they were just plain old Clark Kent, to use the Superman analogy, not as Superman. He 
had to speak to them in the same way in which he would speak to just any old unbeliever. That's why he says he spoke to them as people of the flesh. The Greek word there is sarkanois. And it describes really their motivation. These were people who were motivated and driven by their fleshly impulses. And so because this was their, what was driving them, just like it would drive any natural person, Paul had to address them in such a manner. And so he kept his message strictly on what they needed to hear. Jesus Christ in him crucified. Because he knew as people of the flesh, their tendency was going to be to use the truth that they're hearing and not utilize it to grow spiritually, but they were going to use it as a means of exalting themselves, as a means of, um, of boasting. And so, in fact, they would just be squandering any truth that he would give them. So he kept it focused. You need to understand the gospel. When I was in high school, uh, my parents would give me lunch money. Um, it was just simpler than making lunches for all their kids every day. But I figured out that if I would just be willing to go without lunch, then I could just pocket that money. And so that's what I would do. I would just save the money up throughout the week. I wouldn't have lunch. And I would use the money to spend on buying beer and partying on the weekends. And likewise, the Corinthians weren't using the supernatural nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that's being described in chapter 2 for growth. Like me, they were choosing to use it by squandering it on their sin. In particular, for them, it was this sin of self-exaltation. Mine was drunkenness, theirs was self-exaltation. They weren't interested in spiritual growth. What they were interested in was simply making a name for themselves. And Paul saw that. And so Paul then makes this point by use of a metaphor. He calls them infants who could only be fed on milk and not solid food. Now, unless we get distracted by the metaphor, let's remember that what Paul's doing here is he's trying to illustrate what he had said earlier in verse 1. He wanted to address them as, spirit, as people with the Holy Spirit, but he couldn't. He wanted to teach them like he would teach any Christians, but he couldn't because of their focus upon themselves. And the metaphor here is really making the same point. I wanted to teach you things, but I couldn't because of your stunted growth. You were like spiritual infants who couldn't handle any more truth because of your spiritual condition. And I, as I think about that, I, I, have to, I have to say that I think spiritual immaturity, infancy, is rampant in our times. How many Christians do you know who have drunk from the fountain of Christian truth for years but they struggle to love their family members, let alone their enemies. They read books, they listen to sermons, they can quote Bible verses, they know lots of good spiritual stuff, but you wouldn't particularly call them spiritual people. They don't look 
like the Holy Spirit is in possession of their lives. Their lives look hardly different from any other moral unbeliever, like a Mormon would be a good example. In fact, I know many Mormons that have better reputation than Christians. But we have the Holy Spirit. Because we have Christ. Not so with unbelievers. They're like baseball fans that can tell you tons of stats and criticize players, but they themselves don't even play the game. They know a lot about the game. They know a lot about what everybody else is doing, but they themselves don't play it. They can barely swing a bat, let alone hit a curveball. Maybe they're like the bat boy of the Chicago Cubs, bragging about the fact that they get to be in the World Series when they're not really making a difference. And Paul's point is the Corinthians are bragging as if they're World Series champions when they're mere bat boys. They're not really helping the team. And this is why he says they weren't ready for more truth until they decide to practice what they're learning. To use the baseball analogy, just like the basics, learn how to hit and learning how to catch from their coach. It would do no good to teach them any more about the finer points of the game. So they might be wanting to know, well, help, help me to know how to read a pitch or, you know, swing a bat better. But what good would that do if they don't know how to pick up a bat? Paul says you weren't ready for it because you weren't even receiving the basics. Well, why not? Because you only wanted to use that information for exalting yourself. And that's not how the Holy Spirit works. That's not how the spiritual life works. Christ died so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose on our behalf. He says they weren't ready for such truth. They weren't ready when he came before, and they're still not ready. They didn't have the maturity to handle more truth. And again, it's not because they couldn't understand anymore. There wasn't, there wasn't anything about what Paul was teaching that was too complicated. That, that's not really the issue. The issue was they would use whatever he would teach them as a means of self-exaltation. So they wanted to use the information, like they wanted to learn more about the Bible so they could show other people how much about the Bible they know. Not so that they would grow. So they could quote other theologians, not so that they could grow in uh, resisting sin. They were using the resources of Christ to exalt themselves. Missing the very foundation of Christianity. Going back to Superman, this would be like Clark Kent after he gave up his superpowers, bragging to Lois Lane or some of his friends about all that he had learned when he had x-ray vision. But who cares what you know about if you can't use it anymore? Who cares what, who cares about that information if you're not utilizing it? If you're not using it for good Likewise, Paul is saying, what good would it do to tell you more about the Holy Spirit's power in you when you have chosen instead to be merely human? 
If you've chosen to ignore the scriptures, if you've chosen to ignore the Holy Spirit, if you've chosen to pursue the world, what good would it do to tell you more about the Holy Spirit? That's not what you need. Mere knowledge and wisdom is not going to save the world. Metropolis didn't need just a popular Clark Kent or a married Clark Kent. Likewise, the world does not just need Christians with a bunch of knowledge. It needs Christians who have chosen to live according to the Holy Spirit. If you wonder why our nation and our world is in such a mess, just consider how, how many people do you know who are relying upon the Holy Spirit and, use it, and following the Holy Spirit's guidance in their life so much that people say, what is it that drives you? I mean, if we look no different from the world, why would we expect our nation to be any healthier? So, Paul says, you weren't ready for it. You weren't ready for these truths. Not because they were too complicated, but because you're, you're, you didn't really desire them for, for their purpose. So, how would Paul know when they were ready? Well, I think the answer is obvious as you look at the text. It's when they weren't acting like unbelievers anymore. When they chose, again, to live as spiritual people. When they were pursuing spiritual ends, no longer seeking to live like mere humans. When their lives would be characterized by the Holy Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. So before we go to the next section, I think it's probably wise for us just to take a moment Before moving on and consider, am I a spiritual infant? Am I stunted in my growth? Or am I fully, am I fully utilizing all the resource God has given me in pursuing his exaltation in my life? Because if we are, that is, if we are spiritual infants, if we're, if we're stunted in our growth, we just, but if we don't realize it, there's not going to be any change. I mean, that's why Paul is bringing this up. He understands that if the, unless the Corinthians realize that they're stunted in their spiritual growth, no change is going to happen. Like, that's, net, that's, that's the first step that needs to happen, just like it would be an AA. A person's got to admit that they're an alcoholic before they're going to take steps to grow. This all reminds me, stunted spiritual growth, that is, of a um, dramatic moment in my life. I, I'm pretty certain I was saved and transformed by the Holy Spirit, born again when I was 10 years old, um, through a Sunday school class. I uh, came to commit my life to Christ, but after just this a, a real short burst of growth and passion and desire to learn about the Bible and tell other people about what I had learned, my faith significantly dwindled. And when I got into junior high, I fell head over heels in love with the world. When I was a sophomore in high school, however, I began to really struggle deeply uh, because despite all the fun that I was having, despite all the popularity that I was enjoying at my school, I was... 
I was miserable. I was frankly just um, depressed. And so I just started, decided to start reading the Bible again. And one book that I came to was the book of Galatians. And I was reading through Galatians, and I'm thinking, this is good. This is okay. Um, and then I came to Galatians chapter 5, and my eyes lit up. You might want to turn there. Um, Galatians chapter 5, very well-known passage of Scripture. Because my eyes lit up because what I was reading, it was like Paul was describing my life. And I'm thinking, yes, he's going he's gonna to tell me something that I need to know. He's describing me right now. Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which means drug use. It's pharmacia is the Greek word. Enmity, strife. Jealousies, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I thought, wow, this is my life. And then I read this, and it hit me like a sledgehammer on the side of the head. In verse 22, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's funny, just reading it again, the emotions come flooding back. Um, because I was the most devout Christian I knew. And I thought, I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And because of this passage... My life was transformed and I just, I set aside everything else and I'm I'm thinking, I want to live the life that Christ has called me to live. And um, now all those things that I once boasted in, I truly count my shame and I hate remembering what I was like at that time. But I'm so thankful for this message in Galatians. And the growth has been slow at times and all of you know how far I still have to go. But I realized I, at that time, was just spiritually stunted. I started great and then just fizzled out. And then I just started living like the rest of the world. And it took a sledgehammer scripture to wake me up. But that scripture has been the most precious verse to me because of what it set me free from. And as a Christian, my life should have been characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul continues But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I mean, that's you couldn't be more explicit. You can't live for the flesh with its passions and desires and call yourself a Christian. Because Christians have crucified those. I mean, there's, you, you, there's not much wiggle room there. Now, the great peace we can afford is even here in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul still refers to them as infants in Christ. He's not calling their salvation to the question. But there's a lot to wonder about, at the very least. They probably should be wondering am I really saved? 
Because those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So is it obvious that the Holy Spirit is uh, ruling your life? Or again, is your life just pretty similar to an unbeliever, a moral unbeliever? Do you love, do you love the Word of God? I mean, would you, could you say you desire it more than your necessary food and it is like honey on your lips, more to be desired than gold? Is the Word of God to you more to be desired than gold? Do you grieve more over your sin than when your feelings get hurt? Or how do you see other people? Unbelievers tend to think of people really in three different categories. Those, those people they can use. That could just be for comfort and encouragement. It could be for advancement. There's people they can use. There's threats to them. These are people to either avoid, not talk to, go the other way from, or um, people they need to get rid of or humiliate in some form. And there's the insignificant, the people that aren't really worth our time or interest because they have nothing to offer me and they're not a threat. None of those categories is appropriate for a Christian to think in. There is no such thing as an insignificant person. And if we truly understand the gospel, there's really no such thing as a threat. And we certainly wouldn't want to use another person to exalt ourselves. Christians see people in two categories. Either this is an unbeliever who I need to reach with the gospel of Christ, or they're a believer who I need to, I get an opportunity to build up and to encourage and to help them see grow in the faith. You can consider the resources you've been given. And with all that you've been given as a Christian, how have you used those resources to invest in Christ's ends? Are you as spiritually mature as you should be by now? I mean, how have you grown in the last decade? Have you grown in the last year? What, what, are you, what strides are you taking to grow? Remember what Jesus said in the, par- uh, the parable of the minas when he talked about the three servants. Two servants went and invested their minas. One made ten other minas. One made five. And then there was the other guy who just took his mina and he buried it in a handkerchief. This is what he says in Luke 19. Then another came to him saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money, not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those standing by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, 
This is the point of the parable. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so what Galatians 5 Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this parable, what they tell us is that spiritual infancy, stunted spiritual growth is not a small issue. This is something that severely concerned both the apostles as well as our Lord Jesus Christ. Severely concerned. And yet we often treat this as Christians as like, well, that's just kind of how it is to be a Christian. You get saved and then, you know... For the Spirit is just like an ideal that we need to pursue. Well, you wouldn't get that from Scripture. See, even though you might have heard that the fruit of the Spirit and joyful sacrificing for Christ are just Christian ideals, they're not. That is a lie. The fruit of the Spirit, again, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you. That's basic Christianity. That's what should characterize the life of a Christian. Basic Christianity. And so if you do recognize that your growth has been stunted, consider next if the reason it's stunted might be similar to what was causing the Corinthians' growth to be stunted. Verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul here just lays out the evidence of their fleshiness. There's jealousy, there's strife, and then rivalries. The I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And each of these is evidence of their decrepit spiritual condition. In fact, he says here, are you not of the flesh behaving in only a human way? That is, a non, a person without the Holy Spirit way. The word flesh here is actually a slightly different word than what he used in verse 1. Here it's the, ver, the Greek word sarkikoi. And it, it reflects the fact that they were living in pursuit of flesh, uh, selfish ends. That is, they were seeking themselves, not what Christ would seek. And then again in verse 4, he amplifies this, saying that they are being merely human. What it literally says is that they are walking according to man, as opposed to walking in the Spirit. They're, they're just walking the same way every other person in the face of this earth walks. The Hindu, the Muslim, the atheistic CEO... So even though they have the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures and should be able to receive and utilize spiritual truth, they can't. They can't do anything with what they even have. There's little to no evidence of the Spirit at work in their lives. And that's why their life is characterized more by the works of the flesh than by the fruit of the Spirit. And you'll notice in Galatians when Paul listed that the works of the flesh... Included in that list are the very three things he mentions here. Strife, jealousy, and rivalries. Same issues with the Corinthians. Jealousy 
is the desire that self may have status or that self may have esteem or that self may have possessions. It's it's the desire that, that craves the glories of this life. That's jealousy. It's it's the I want mentality. Later on in 1 Corinthians 13, when he's talking about love, he explicitly, explicitly says, love is not jealous. And his point there is, the person who says, I want you, I need you, I must have you, doesn't love you. They're wanting to use you. A truly loving person says, I will sacrifice whatever I need to so that you might have whatever you need. The I want mentality is, is just fleshly jealousy. Strife. This is the desire and strategy to gain, to gain uh, superiority over others. The desire to be better than others and the strategizing to find out how you might get better than others. I think a better translation of the word, honestly, is the word competitive. And in our culture, that's seen as a virtue. It's not a virtue. I mean, that's competitiveness, right? The desire to gain advantage over others and strategizing on how. So I'm always amazed that when Christians brag about their competitiveness as if it was a virtue. It's not. It's what leads to rivalries, which is what was going on within the Corinthian church. This I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. What's the issue here? What's wrong with saying I, I follow Paul? I mean, later on in 4.16 and then in 11.1, he's going to actually say, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. So what's wrong with them saying, I follow Paul? Well, it's not that they shouldn't have spiritual leaders to look up to and to model their lives after. That's not the issue. It's that they were using their identification with certain leaders as a means to exalt themselves over one another. So this wasn't be, they weren't following Paul because they just enjoyed his teaching. They were following Paul because then they could get the I follow Paul badge and everybody else could ooh and ah about them. It's where their identity was. But Christians should never seek to exalt themselves, especially over other Christians. Multiple times, Christ reminded his followers that he who exalts himself will be humbled. Matthew 23, 12. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. It says, and Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Or Philippians 2, 3. Do Nothing, not a thing. In fact, it's like a double negative there. Never, no, never do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. That's how Christians think. They don't exalt themselves. They seek to exalt others. Not so that others will be praised, but so that 
Others might grow. But this is what Christians are doing. They're exalting themselves whenever they differentiate themselves from other Christians. The problem is not that they're seeking to follow Paul or Apollos, but they're using their leaders as a means of gaining esteem, not as a means of growing spiritually. So those who seek to exalt themselves over other people prove their spiritual immaturity. It proves their stunted growth. I mean, that's the, that's the evidence of their stunted growth. And so the bottom line for the Corinthians is that they need to recognize that their problem isn't because of Paul's weak teaching, his milk. Their problem is their own fault. They're choosing not to receive it like they should they're, because they're still choosing the things of this world. Their glory is not in Christ. Their glory is in the world and in stuff. So it's not that they haven't been felled well or that God's word is not true. But they failed to grow spiritually because they haven't been pursuing spiritual growth. They haven't been pursuing it. It's almost like they just expected it to just kind of happen. Like we grow up physically. It just kind of happens to us. I suppose we eat and we exercise. But for the most part, we just grow without thinking. That's not the way spiritual growth works. You have to pursue it. So as I wrestled through this, um, I felt compelled as a pastor. Well, how Paul is speaking to his church, Corinthians, and noting these things, jealousy, strife, and rivalries, it's characterizing them as being spiritually stunted. Well, where is grace and truth? I had to ask myself, where is grace? Are we, are we a stunted people? It's hard to know because I don't think like them we have strife and rivalries. Things aren't obvious, but I do think, I do think we have a lot more we can grow in in the least. And so here's some things I just, that came to mind that I think as a church, generalities, areas that we can grow in. First of all, we can grow in our commitment to the word and in prayer. Almost, I can't tell you how frequent it is when I talk with people, I ask them, how's your time in the word and prayer? It's usually not very consistent. It's a, usual, it's a common thing um, just for us to, to, to struggle. Um, but this is a basic Christian practice. We need the word. We need to pray. We should crave it. it should, these should be central pieces in our life. But they're frequently not. I think another thing we can grow in is our commitment to gathering together, our commitment to one another. Um, Our commitment level, I'd say, to coming to prayer meetings, to coming to community group, even coming to church on Sunday, it's it's shaky at best. Um, It's not that it's commitment's non-existent, but it just seems to be inconsistent. Especially when you compare how devoted people can be to other things. Like, like you take a, a track athlete. They will go to track practice even when they're injured. They'll, they'll do whatever they can even when they're sick or injured just because they don't want to lose traction. Or other people 
non-athletes, they would, they would do everything to keep from missing their favorite television show. But they could skip out on some sort of spiritual pursuit. So I think we can grow in our commitment to gatherings. And I think, thirdly, we can grow in our warmth. I'll use the word warmth. The, the biblical term would be love. Um, I, don't, I do think the people here genuinely do care about one another. I just think we're really bad at showing it. Or weak at showing it, maybe. And I, I say that because that's what I hear from y'all. Are other Christians in this church convinced that you love them? So just think about the person in the next row or the row behind you. Are those people convinced that you love them? Are you a person that they could trust with their burdens? Could they confess some sort of weakness or struggle to you without getting scolded and and, and look to you as as a person that would pray for them and encourage them, challenge them if needed? Could they ask you for help without thinking that you're burdening them? Do they know that you'll eagerly embrace an opportunity to care for them, whatever their needs might be? And again, you may be there, but do other people know that? We have a church of, largely a church of introverts. And so communicating warmth and love is a challenge. But... Christians, they will know you by your love. People will know that you follow Christ by your love. This is something that should be primarily characteristic of us. They shouldn't assume it. We should prove it. So do people know that you love them? So Paul isn't trying here to kick them in the teeth and calling them spiritual infants, saying that you're walking in mere, as mere humans. But he is trying to wake them up. It's like he's trying to throw cold water on their face. Realize where you're at. Snap out of it. And so if you recognize that your growth has been spiritually stunted, recognize also there is tremendous hope here for you. Because what you've been experiencing is not what you're supposed to be experiencing. Like really, your life could be characterized by love, supernatural love, supernatural peace and joy despite your circumstances. You could be suffering. You could be impoverished. And that is what would characterize you. Not because, because you're not merely human. You have the Holy Spirit. That fruit comes from the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit and you're abiding in Christ, that is what your life is supposed to look like. Basic Christianity. That could be yours. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that they're nowhere near where they should be because he wants them to see what they could be. He wants them to see what life in Christ should be like. There's so much more that the Holy Spirit and life in Christ have to offer. I mean, the church, their church should be a place where they're invigorated and they're refreshed and they're empowered and charged to go out and serve the Lord with the gospel or in serving other Christians. Not a place where there's rivalry and jealousy. They can live lives of boldness and joy and abundant spiritual fruit. But they won't do this until they recognize that their growth has been stunted. 
until they recognize they're not spiritually mature. They're not going to grow. They have to see it first. So how do they repent from their stunted situation? How do they maximize the incredible resources they've been given with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit? Well, this is, you could add this as a third point to your outline, repenting from stunted growth. And this is really brief. Three things I think they can do. There's probably a ton more, but these are what come to mind. They need to grasp, the stunted Christian needs to grasp the word of the cross. And what I mean by that is that the gospel is not merely an offer of salvation from the wrath of God. It's an offer of freedom from the slavery to sin and the slavery to selfishness and self-worship. The gospel is freedom from sin. So if you've been free from sin, why would you pursue it? It's the last thing that you'd want to do. You don't go... The, the, the person who was slave from, uh, freed from their slave master doesn't come back asking for more after they've been freed. You're free from sin. It's something to flee now, not something to run to. Secondly, prioritize the Word of God, prayer, fellowship, and evangelism prioritize these things make them a consistent part of your life if you can strategize on how you can grow uh, in your company in work if you how you can if you can strategize on how to be a better parent how to be a better athlete if you can do that you can strategize how to grow spiritually and prioritize it and so grasp the word of the cross prioritize these spiritual disciplines, and thirdly, aim at Christ's likeness, not worldly success. Make the aim of your life being a servant who seeks to glorify Christ, not worldly success. The pursuit of worldly success was the main reason that the Corinthians were stunted in their spiritual growth. That's what was going on. That's what was causing the rivalries and strife and jealousies and dissensions. Their desire to succeed in the world, to be thought well of, to gain a good reputation, both from outsiders as well as those within the church. And so the question that, prob- that may come to some of your minds is, maybe it doesn't, it comes to my mind, but the question is, is it therefore sinful to pursue success in this life? Is it sinful to pursue the glory of this life? Is it sinful? Well, I think this would be like asking an NFL player or an NFL player asking his coach, Coach, is it okay if we lose the game today? And the answer would probably be, well, yes, it's okay. We're not going to take you out in the alley and put a bull in your head because you lose. But it's kind of missing the point. If you're showing up to the game asking the question, you're missing the point of why you're here. The very fact that the player would ask the question would make him suspect, right? I mean, why would you ask the question? If your aim is to win, why would you ask, is it okay to lose? If you've chosen to follow Christ and now live for him who died and rose again on your behalf, why would you ask if you can therefore go and pursue something else, if it's okay? The question itself makes it suspect. I mean, it would be like, 
a, uh, a, a young man knocks on the door, asks, asks the father if he can date his daughter and says, okay, sir, how far is too far? Well, the front door would probably be too far, I would guess. Because the very question is suspect. Why would you even ask the question? It misses the point. Or when you got engaged, did you ask your fiancé if you could still go on dates with other people? I mean, so later on in the future, if you ended up having a meal with somebody that's not your spouse, it's not like your marriage is going to be over because that happens. Right. And if you're pursuing your if you're pursuing life in Christ and success happens to you, it doesn't mean you're in sin. But. It would be wrong if the NFL player lost the game or you ate a meal with somebody other than your spouse because you were aiming to lose and because you were pursuing unfaithfulness. Right. If the if the NFL player plays the game trying to lose, well, that's a problem. Or if you go eat a meal with somebody that's not your spouse because you're trying to be unfaithful, that's a problem. But if it just happens, it, it happens. It's not sinful to be successful, but it would be to pursue success as the aim of your life. Your aim is not to be glorious in this life. Your aim is to follow Christ. And it comes with a cost. But it's a good cost. And it's a cost that comes with tremendous benefits. And it's not the kind of benefits the world necessarily will stand in awe of. But it is something that you will treasure in the darkest times of your life. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be all that you've called us to be as Christians. Lord, if there is any of us, or if we're stunted in any small way, if there's anything that's hindering us from being the people that you've called us to be, I pray that you'd help us to see it. Because we can hear these words, but God, we don't even know our own hearts. As Paul even said, he doesn't even judge himself. So we ask that you would judge us. Lord, I pray that you would give grace to spouses to be a a comfort and a challenge to one another as they consider these things, and parents to children, and even children to parents. And Lord, in, as, as we go through this week, I pray that you would help us to see even the only the things that we would see, of what it is that we need to set aside and stop pursuing, and what it is that we need to take on and commit to. Lord, you know our lives. You know our burdens. You know our resources. You know our You know our challenges, and I pray that you would shepherd us, shepherd your flock here in a way that nobody else can. Shepherd them, shepherd each individual to see what it is that their life needs to look like so they would be the spiritually mature people that you've called them to be, and so that they might enjoy the benefits of tasting your glory and the benefits of seeing the fruit of the Spirit abundant in their life and the benefits of seeing you use them powerfully to transform lives that we would not be a church uh, that's merely human but a church that is dominated and controlled and driven by the supernatural power of god that's who we want to be and so we ask that you would do that to us in jesus name
Amen.